Hey guys, welcome back to the V Word. This is Ask a Lady Doc, our mini series where we talk to all different kinds of doctors who specialize in different areas within women's health. It turns out we've got a lot more than just vaginas, and there's a lot to say about all those other different parts of our bodies. Stay tuned. This week, we talked with Dr. Anjali Malik, who is a breast imaging radiologist in Washington, D.C. We talked to her about COVID's impact on screening and how to navigate moving forward. Dr. Malik serves as a medical advisor for Bright Pink, an organization that educates and empowers young women on their breast and ovarian health. Executive producer Bethany Bonilla has this interview. So again, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, just to sort of give a brief in, intro today, I'm chatting with Dr. Anjali Malik. You are a breast imaging radiologist, women's health advocate, um, practicing at Washington Radiology, and you serve as medical advisory on the medical advisory committee for Bright Pink. Yes, exactly. So as a breast radiologist, I detect and diagnose breast cancer through mammograms, I do biopsies, and then um, with Bright Pink, we do a lot to educate and empower young women on their breast and ovarian health. And so today, I wanted to talk to you about how COVID is affecting uh, screenings and sort of um, how people can start to navigate screenings as we transition into this time. But first, I want to check how you're doing. Oh, well, thank you for asking. Um, I'm tired, I think, like a lot of us are. Uh, obviously, it's been a stressful time, um, you know, when it first hit, when we were figuring out how to respond, when we were figuring out how we were ever going to reopen and get the necessary PPE. And now that we're open, honestly, it's just exhausting being in the PPE all day, even though we're super grateful to have it, um, you know, to be protected. It is um, pretty exhausting. Uh, it's hot. I don't get to drink, you know, water as much as I would like to, and I'm running around all day. And honestly, you know, it, it, it really limits your ability to connect with patients, which is so important for what I do. Uh, I, I deal with very high anxiety, um, not women, the women are not all high anxiety, but the state is, the, the mm -hmm. exams, uh, you know, if they've been called back from screening or if they were feeling something it's incredibly high anxiety. And so for them to not really be able to see my face and just hear these words, uh, it, it can be a little challenging. And, and the whole smile with your eyes doesn't work if you have a face shield or goggles oh, on. Which I eyes. Have. I've never been able to master the smiles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, so I find myself repeating myself a lot, either because my muffled words uh, weren't heard or just because I, I want to get the point across. So yes, yeah, so it's, um, it's fatiguing, but I am glad to be seeing patients again. I'm glad to be, uh, you know, getting back to um, this important care that we provide um, and still trying to do it safely um, in a limited fashion. One thing I wanted to make sure to say at the start is I want to, you know, talk about this topic, not in a way that is one more thing for people to stress about, right? but really be able to gain the insight from you on how you take action and how you move forward mindfully. Does that sound okay? I don't know. It's, I think if I just, I just wanted to say it at the beginning to be able to say, Hey, I'm not ringing the alarm bells and saying, this is another thing to stress about. So I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah, no, I think that, um, you know, 
health maintenance is really what a lot of this is about. So in the same way that, you know, you can either wait for your check engine light to come on and your, and your tire pressure, you know, warning to come on, or you can just do it regularly and avoid all that. Uh, there are obviously two different ways to approach car maintenance, body maintenance, um, et cetera. And so, you know, what we really want to be doing is seeing women regularly for screening mammograms. And I want those women to regularly be thinking about how they can be reducing their risk for breast cancer. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are a, a lot of things that I talk about with your modifiable risk factors. Mm-hmm. And, and those become even more important at times like this where we're adding extra stress to our bodies to make sure not to exacerbate that by, you know, drinking three glasses of wine at night because we think that's going to de-stress us. That puts more stress on our body and then it, you know, increases our risk for breast cancer amongst other things. And so that's really just what my message is about is to really be taking care of ourselves through this whole process. You know, mm-hmm. so I've been trying to talk to women about do your regular exams, avoid alcohol, still try to get regular exercise and eat healthy because obesity is another risk factor for breast cancer. And then, you know, have your screening on the horizon, have those talks with your doctors. Screening centers, breast imaging centers, um, radiology facilities are back open now pretty much nationwide. I mean, to be honest, I think DC and LA are the only two places that are still on some version of uh, stay at home order. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. And so, and, and even in, in DC, we're still doing some forms of breast imaging at our DC and Maryland offices. We're definitely doing, uh, you know, um, even more. So. Mm-hmm. And to chat about, you know, what sort of led up to the current moment at the start of COVID things like mammograms, colonoscopies, routine screenings, um, they were considered, you know, among other procedures, things that health systems were um, holding off on just, and I, I uh, was looking at your Twitter and I, I think this is just so important to bring up uh, because it speaks to really, I think so much of your care towards your patients and your view on health is you had a tweet that said, as a women's public health professional who strongly advocates for early detection, I'm disappointed that many continue to do screenings despite CDC recommendations. This is a time of crisis. We need to do our part to flatten the curve. And that really speaks to, you know, your, the care for your patients, but you're also your care for community and your view of health and being able to say, hey, I'm more than anyone. No screenings are important, but we have to have our priorities straight. Is that the message? Can you talk? speak to that? Absolutely. No, I think that that pretty much sums it up. You know, my background is in public health. That's what I majored in at Johns Hopkins. I got my BA in public health. I was going to go on to get my master's in public health along with my MD while at Tulane, but Hurricane Katrina hit instead. And so I kind of, I shelved that idea. But, but yeah, so my background is in public health. And as much as I know that early detection saves lives and it, you know, gives women the best chance to survive cancer. I also know um, overall, and and I knew in the short term, the more important thing was to flatten the curve um, and to cease all those types of exams so that the system could catch up for the PPE production for those who, you know, truly needed it on the front lines um, and for everyone to just sort of gather themselves, take a break, and understand how we could all provide the same level of care 
but socially distanced and, you know, with really strict safety and sanitizing measures, um, et cetera. And, and it's not to say, I mean, it, it makes it sound like hospitals and, and, you know, medical facilities were unsanitized before. That's certainly not the case, but we weren't sanitizing, you know, doorknobs and, and, you know, to the level that we are now, right? I mean, any, anything that came into bodily fluids, those kinds of things, of course, like those were always being sanitized. That was always the case. In fact, the, the kinds of cleaning, you know, the, the wipes, the um, germicidal wipes, those are still the ones that we're using. It's just the fact that now those are touching even more surfaces because mm-hmm. we want to make sure that our patients um, and our technologists and our doctors are safe. So right around, right around the time that I posted that message, there was a mammography tech in Georgia who had gotten coronavirus and, and passed away from it. And it was around the time when we started hearing of physicians and nurses and, and healthcare workers in, in the U.S., um, you know, succumbing to the disease. And the thing is, I mean, I don't think any physician ever goes into medicine or any healthcare worker goes into medicine thinking, I'll be in the line of fire, right? We're not like, we, we certainly plan on taking care of our patients. We, we know that we'll work extended hours, nights, weekends, you know, really long shifts, um, you know, more than the ACGME might allow, et cetera. But, but we're not like firefighters or, you know, uh, law enforcement in that sense or, or the military where we signed up to be in the line of fire. And, and definitely I know that no mammography tech planned on that, um, mm-hmm. you know, when they joined. So, so I felt like it was really, really important to be protecting our technologists mm-hmm. because in so many health systems, um, you know, you have physicians who are in charge or you have, uh, you know, health administration that it, that's in charge, whether it's hospital or, or group administration and the technologists who are the, the front line of radiology um, are, were really the ones that were going to be most affected. So I, I just felt like it was really, really important to be making decisions that had them in mind. Right. Can you, and I think just to help understand with things opening back up and where we're at, understanding where we were. So can you speak a little bit about what the reality was a month ago, even a few weeks ago, which screenings were happening and what, what wasn't happening? So theoretically, no screening mammograms were happening in the U.S. And that was per the CDC, the American College of Radiology and the Society of Breast Imaging. Now, you know, I, I can't speak for every small center, um, particularly in some of the states that have not been as heavily burdened, um, because there was no mandate. It was just the recommendations. But certainly every major center, um, including hospital-based centers and outpatient imaging centers like what I, where I work, um, had all stopped screening. Uh, screening, of course, is performed on asymptomatic women. That's your regular health maintenance. Diagnostic mammography is performed on women who have symptoms mm-hmm. um, or who are at high risk or who have something that's being followed or who um, have, um, have been called back from screening. And that was happening at a variable level. That uh, was or was not happening, really, at a variable level throughout the country. So there were some facilities that were limiting it to what was considered urgent and acute. Um, you know, for example, breast abscess is the only actual emergency um, or anything that might mimic 
inflammatory breast cancer, you know, the redness, mm-hmm. uh, warmth, um, thickening skin changes of the breast. That's the only true emergency. Uh, that and abscess are the only true emergencies that we have in breast imaging. Mm-hmm. And then everything else became a, a matter of seeing what was happening in your jurisdiction to determine if it was worthwhile to perform those services. So as an example, there were some hospitals that had completely shut down Mm -hmm. uh, any cancer surgeries um, and, you know, might just be giving women neoadjuvant chemotherapy, et cetera. And so the idea was then, okay, you know, maybe we can afford for two or three weeks to just not do any mammography because if these patients are not going to be seeing surgeons, they're not going to be obtaining any sort of further care. Mm-hmm. Um, not that we ever want to delay diagnoses, but, but there was this situation around the country where it was felt that maybe we, just for the um, a short term, mm-hmm. that can be done. Of course, now around the country, things are pretty much back in business. Um, in most cases, especially for those of perhaps, I don't know the best way to say it, maybe average risk, is there a risk of delaying a mammogram by a month? Or, you know, I, can you provide some of that insight? Yeah. So, you know, the studies have shown that annual mammography performed for women after the age of 40 um, or starting at the age of 40 decreases mortality by 40%. Now, you know, were you to change that to a 13-month interval or a 14-month interval, I, I don't know how different the results would be. I suspect minimal. The I think the comparison in that situation is to every two years, right? So annually versus every two years. And then we can certainly speak to there being a difference in the impact on mortality. So no, I think for the average risk woman, that, that one in eight over the course of our lifetime, which is the 12%, <clears throat> um, there's not a significant difference. Um, and obviously we knew that for the coronavirus, there was a significant impact that um, staying at home and social distancing mm-hmm. could provide. So it's not that we are now ringing the alarm bells that, you know, oh my gosh, you're a month overdue. Um, it's more that the idea of screening is that it should be easily accessible, mm-hmm. um, cheap, easy, fast, uh, and, and good at detection. And unfortunately, we're, we've really affected the accessibility and the, uh, the, the concept of it being easy and fast, because it's not as easy and fast when you have to sterilize a room and when you have to keep patients more than six feet apart and when you can't have more than X number of people in a waiting room and when you have a limited number of you know, rooms and staff and et cetera. You know, as an example, my um, practice, mm-hmm across seven locations was typically doing 350 mammograms, um, screening mammograms per day. And I mean, we're like at a 10th of that, um, early in the process, it, you know, mm-hmm. it'll certainly increase. But the point being that if we need to get, you know, say 10,000 women screened or 20,000 or 50,000 or whatever, and we're, you know, we have this bottleneck, mm-hmm. um, via just the amount that we're able to even fit in a day, at some point that's going to start affecting the system. Um, and it's no one's fault. I mean, it's coronavirus as well, but you know, um, 
it, it's, it's no one person's fault. I think the correct decisions were made. Um, and, and obviously, you know, everyone examined the situation and, and made that decision. Um, but I think that it's going to take women signing on now um, to help move everyone forward. Mm-hmm. And right now, you know, seeing that health systems are opening up and um, some of these procedures that were considered non-urgent um, are back in order, there's not only that backlog, but perhaps even a reluctance from people to go get a screening, whether it's fear of contracting the virus or um, this, the part that breaks my heart is just thinking of folks that have lost insurance or, but specifically the reluctance, what are your concerns when, when you think about the longer period of time that folks might not be getting screened? Um, and it sounds like there's some, you know, strategizing that has to happen in addressing the backlog, but the reluctance and the fear might be more of a strategy of just addressing fear and getting the right messaging out. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, absolutely. I I think that women need to understand that, um, or, you know, we need to get the message across that uh, there are now practices in place um, through social distancing, through reduced scheduling. I mean, you're not going to be sitting in a packed waiting room anytime soon um, in a medical facility. You know, I know restaurants are breaking rules about 25% 25% capacity or 50% capacity, no medical facility is ever going to break that rule because we all know better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and no one wants to be the medical facility where someone gets sick, right? The outpatient medical facility. So, so I think uh, you're not going to see um, a packed waiting room for a very long time. Um, you're, so social distancing is definitely happy, happening. Um, and everyone's wearing masks and everyone's sanitizing and everyone has, you know, I mean, for example, in my practice, the physicians started wearing scrubs um, at their discretion. So some, some have not, but we were always the very, you know, dressed up to the nines kind of uh, outpatient imaging practice. And a lot of us decided, you know, we want to be throwing these clothes straight into the washer. Um, and, you know, we don't want to be wearing those shoes anywhere mm-hmm. else. So so we, we made that change. And uh, in addition to, you know, getting the goggles and the N95s and stuff. So we've made sure that we're protected, not just for us, but obviously to protect the patients. Um, and, and still, you know, there are some things um, that we took our time in even adding on to make sure to see what the practices were around the country. So one example is thyroid fine needle aspirations. Those are um, ultrasound guided biopsies using a, a fine needle to look at thyroid nodules um, to assess if they're cancer. And, you know, our concern was, well, will patients be able to wear a mask? And so, I mean, we actually like tested it out essentially mm-hmm. to make sure that that was something that would be safe and looked at all the recommendations. And, and same for um, ultrasounds that we perform, like body ultrasounds, abdominal ultrasounds, OB-GYN ultrasounds. The um, Association for Ultrasound Medicine, the National Association, formed pretty, you know, tight guidelines for what they recommended on how many each tech should be doing per day and, and how they should be alternating rooms and spacing out patients and stuff. So, so everyone is, is doing best practices. Um, and then when it comes to the health insurance, that was a concern of mine out the gate. Um, I mean, you know, not to get into some sort of the healthcare reform debate, um, but employer-based healthcare 
um, it's going to be a problem when you have, uh, you know, unprecedented unemployment rates. And so I really do worry about how these people are going to move forward with any kind of healthcare. Um, but of course, for health maintenance, which I think is the most important because prevention, obviously, um, is key to our health. And so I think amongst the things that it does, you know, you know at least um, the ACA or Obamacare did guarantee um, coverage for health maintenance exams. So, you know, anyone who had insurance for the last however many years now it's been was able to get a screening mammogram um, with 100% coverage. And that was huge mm -hmm. um, to, to be able to provide that level of access because that meant that the number of people who were uninsured, obviously, or unable to get it through insurance was decreased. And so then charities, you know, whether they be faith-based mm -hmm. charities or nonprofit-based, were able to help uh, the remainder mm -hmm. um, as a safety net. I don't know what the safety nets are going to look like now through the government or private organizations, mm -hmm. but they're certainly going to have their hands full. Right. Um, and that's just to try to get the screening. A lot of the times those organizations are actually helping women who need diagnostics or then biopsies in cancer care. So uh -huh. to be also having to have uh, handle large numbers of women who need screenings is really mm -hmm. going to you know, put a burden on those. What advice do you have um, for people who want to now navigate how to move forward safely, mindfully in, in getting screenings? Like, is, do you think, and I'm sure it varies by practice in terms of if people should be reaching out or waiting to hear from um, their physician to, you know, reschedule a screening, but do you have any advice for navigating? Yeah, no, I mean, I think I, I'm always um, advocate for, you know, being um, proactive. So I think that if you're due for a mammogram, if you're overdue for a mammogram, um, absolutely be reaching out to, you know, your primary care provider or your or OB-GYN, um, whomever you coordinate that through and, uh, you know, getting the referral, whether it is for the screening or the diagnostic, and then getting on a schedule. Because the thing is, again, with these backlogs, um, you know, you could be looking at an appointment that's a month away um, or six weeks away. And and even then, you know, just depending on how these things play out, we don't actually know what's going to be happening in a month or six weeks. Mm -hmm. or, so just, uh, I think, getting on the schedule and being mindful of the situation um, is always important. And if you don't mind just sharing, when it comes to breast cancer, this is probably the case across the board, but early detection is, is, can be key, right? It can be life-saving. Right. And early detection is, is not just um, about reducing mortality, which, I mean, obviously that's huge. Um, and the, again, the annual mammography uh, initiated at the age of 40 reduces mortality by 40%. It also um, improves cosmesis so, and, and uh, decreases morbidity. So, you know, some women can avoid chemotherapy if they're found at early stages. Um, you in some cases could avoid radiation. You can have a smaller surgery and that is not just about cosmesis. We know that everything comes with risks. And so, you know, the side effects um, from a small surgery, you know, are still, are still there. 
And then if you can avoid uh, major surgery to the axilla where the lymph nodes are, then you can hopefully avoid um, one of the detrimental side effects, which is lymphedema, um, which you know really is a, a devastating effect for a lot of women. Um, it's painful. Um, it's just uncomfortable. And, and so, and then, you know, it increases um, your cosmetic options too, because that's always important. I mean, I think that um, trying to go back to your baseline or your equilibrium is important in the recovery process. And so whether that means, you know, getting a breast lift or a, you know, an implant or a, a mammopexy, um, you know, whatever, whatever the options are, they increase the earlier you find it. I see. And, and you know, if someone reaches out and they may have a weight, a self-exam, a monthly self-exam, is that something, just breast health awareness, a, a tip of, you know, something someone could be doing or do leading up to their appointment, just checking in and noticing, you know, when they do finally go in, what they might want to bring up? So I actually recommend that to happen before you've even reached out to your doctor. So mm. I also always, re I recommend that as a regular practice. So what I don't want you to do is to have never done a self-exam and then, you know, on your 40th birthday, um, take a feel and then say, oh, well, I feel something. Uh, because those situations are often just normal breast tissue. It's something that I think women shouldn't begin in their 20s. Um, as a monthly mid-cycle self-exam, uh, an annual clinical exam, and then, uh, again, a risk assessment. So we haven't mm -hmm. talked about that, but I think having a risk assessment in your 20s is important um, to determine your screening protocol. So up until now, we've been talking about average risk women. So that's, again, the one in eight over the course of her lifetime, no significant family history, um, personal history, or risk factors. Women bump up into the high-risk category um, for a number of reasons. So um, the most high penetrance being a known genetic mutation. So the BRCA1, BRCA2, um, check to a lot of other ones. BRCA1 and BRCA2 are, of course, the, the most well-known, but there are so many. Um, so those are like the absolute high-risk, very high pen penetrance. Some of those are 100% chance of getting breast cancer. Um, obviously if you have a strong family history. So strong family history tends to come from multiplicity or from premenopausal uh, family history. So if your grandmother or, you know, great aunt had it at the age of 80, mm -hmm. that in general does not impact your risk as much um, because uh, the two strong, uh, biggest risk factors for the development of breast cancer are being female and aging. So if you are an aged female, you are at higher risk. So an 80-year-old woman is at higher risk for the development of breast cancer than a 30-year-old. Um, so having that family younger, that family member that was perhaps diagnosed at a younger age, that's more of a flag of, is that correct? Right, exactly. And that's why I want women in their 20s to be having those discussions with their doctors because, and we can go back to risk factors, but. But, uh, you know, if you're someone who has family history of premenopausal breast cancer and your sister at 35 and your mom at 40, and you start screening at 40, you're already, you know, a decade behind. Um, and, 
you know, you've missed out on that conversation for, should I get genetic testing? You've missed out on the conversation on, you know, should I be getting screening earlier? What are my screening options, et cetera. And if, as an example, you were to have a genetic mutation, you've, you know, you've missed out on, are there any risk reducing mm. options for me, whether that be um, preventative mastectomy, you know, prophylactic mastectomy, um, oophorectomy, um, or in some cases, tamoxifen, which is um, not just a chemotherapeutic agent, but actually a chemo um, preventive agent for some women who are at particularly high risk. So, um, also for Ashkenazi Jewish women and African American women, these conversations are very important because the the um, incidence of BRCA mm-hmm. in those populations is um, higher, and just the the you know. Genetic testing in this country and worldwide um, as a whole is underperformed. So I, I read a statistic, I think that like only 10 to, no, I don't remember if it was 10,000 or 100,000. I should definitely look that up. Um, of, the, of the possible BRCA mutations, like the 250,000 BRCA mutations are actually uh, diagnosed. So we know there are so many women out there who have BRCA, which is... Ooh. Such an accessibility question, right? Or, you know, it's just that's well, an issue. It really is. There aren't enough genetic counselors, we mm-hmm. know. And, um, you know, you have a lot of primary care and, and other physicians who are hesitant to do genetic testing, understandably, because there is a mm-hmm. lot that comes with that. Um, on the flip side, you hear about some people who are underqualified mm-hmm. to be doing genetic testing who do it, make recommendations without fully understanding the results. Um, you know, you hear these horror stories of women who got mastectomies and oophorectomies and then didn't actually have a mutation. Uh, and then you have the, the direct-to-consumer, you know, nightmares um, <laughs> that, that completely under-test and give false sense of securities, false senses of security mm-hmm. uh, to women. Um, in particular, um, you know, the 23andMe, for example, only tests for three out of, uh, out of thousands of known uh, BRCA mutations. And specifically, they don't test for the BRCA mutations that are known to um, be in uh, women of color, African-American women. So, you know, if those populations are thinking, wow, this is a, a much cheaper way for me mm-hmm. to get access to genetic testing and, and look at that, like you're really leveling the playing field. And they use that and they're found to be negative and they go about their business thinking right. like, you know, everything's fine. And they just get their annual screening starting at 40. We've robbed those women of that really important information. So thank you for mentioning that because I'm not sure if that's knowledge that's been widespread enough. And, and that false sense of security, like you're saying, is just so could be so detrimental. So, wow. I almost want to, I just wish that was like, like yeah, I, I, I post about it every, you know, ever since that uh, came onto the market and that, you know, that was a known to me, which I think has been a few years now. I definitely drop it in Instagram and Twitter posts, you know, a little, sometimes your annual, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little passive aggressively. I'm like, yeah, and BPC is a terrible thing. Um, you know, genetic testing is fraught with a lot of different uh, uh, difficulties for both mm. patients and providers. It's it's not an easy system. And again, I think I think the number 
that I read recently is that there are eight genetic counselors per 1 million people. So if you think about, you know, the billions of people that are here on our planet, uh, you know, not every single one of them needs genetic testing that we know. Um, but you still will need to go through that conversation with a, a large number of them. And then many of those will need to go on to have genetic testing and we clearly don't have the capacity. So, and it sounds like it starts with just with the risk assessment and really considering what, what might lead up to the, the, um, the need of, of genetic testing. Is that correct? Yes. And there are so many models, whether, you know, I mean, there are ones that are better than others. The tire acoustic, um, is, is one that's, um, known for being a, l- a little bit more discriminant. And, you know, that's something at some point, it's just a plug in, you know, a punch and plug and, and get your results, um, model that a, a well-versed PCP or ob should be able to do. Um, and again, you know, no major decisions need to be made on that if, if that particular physician and provider doesn't feel comfortable, but, but it needs to happen. So those conversations can be had as an example. Um, I have two, two examples. One is a friend of mine. She's, she's vocal about it. Um, it's, you know, on her Instagram page, her husband, mm-hmm. uh, is BRCA1 or BRCA2. No, I don't remember. She's, he's BRCA positive. Uh, his sister had breast and ovarian cancer. Um, and so when they decided to family plan, they opted for IVF with pre-screening of the embryos. Um, now that's an extremely aggressive option, but it's an important discussion to have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, it, it, I feel better that they were empowered and educated and got to make that decision for themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, on the flip side, I can't tell you the number of times I see a late 20 or, you know, mid 30 something who has this family history that screams BRCA, just screams BRCA. No one ever had the conversation with them. They're pregnant, you know, or they're, they haven't had any kids yet, but they're about to, they just got married, et cetera. And I'm the one who has to say, like, you should have had kids yesterday. You should already be having the conversations about next steps. Um, and, uh, and here we are, you know, haven't tested them. And, and you know, the list goes on. And I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not here to ring the bells, you know, I'm not here to be an alarmist. But what I want is for women to have that knowledge when they're young so they can make that choice. Because what I hate is, is that these women didn't, didn't get to make those choices earlier on. They might not have done anything about it. And that's their prerogative. Wouldn't be my recommendation, but it's their prerogative. But the fact that, you know, I mean, I don't expect them to know that family history of ovarian cancer warrants genetic testing. Um, you know, I don't expect them to know that getting breast implants when your, you know, mom and sister have BRCA might not be the smartest idea. Probably you should get, just get a prophylactic mastectomy and then get those implants, right? Like, so I just want them to be able to have those open conversations. Mm-hmm. And do those, 
and what you're saying now, I mean, people are lucky to have, you know, parents that are starting those conversations with them saying, hey, you know, your aunt, or this is what I went through. But it, it starts with an OB too, is that? Yeah, so it can be your primary care or your OB guide, just depending on how you're directing your healthcare. We, you're seeing more and more primary care providers that are specializing in women's health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think a lot of that is women who have just carved out that niche. Um, mm-hmm. but, but I know several of them who um, have gone down that route because it's of interest to them, but maybe they didn't want to, you know, be delivering babies, which I understand. Um, and so, so you have, um, you do have PCPs who are very comfortable having those discussions and, and handling mm-hmm. and being the point person for those types of issues. And then obviously, yeah, your, your ob Um and, and, you know, you have some ob who are a little bit more on the OB focus. You have some that are more on the gynecology focus. But, but what you don't want is to just be going into that annual exam and it being all about, you know, fertility and reproduction mm-hmm. and your pap smear. Um, you, you know, you need to be making sure that that, that discussion has been had. And, and the thing that I always tell patients too, right, is we think that breast cancer history is the only risk factor for breast cancer. Mm. And that's not true. So ovarian cancer, colon cancer, pancreatic cancer, um, you know, a lot of these things will, will feed in and, and not infrequently we'll see a patient who's the first person in their family to have breast cancer, but they had all these other clusters mm-hmm. um, and they go on to have a genetic mutation. So I think um, it, in that situation, it, it's just, important that, uh, you know, the OB-GYN is taking that extensive uh, history to be Mm -hmm. able to have that thorough discussion. Right. And it's, you know, the empowerment is such a huge part of it, which is why I think it's so important that we're having this conversation because it could be a simple podcast that, you know, puts the thought in someone's head to ask those questions and then hopefully they feel empowered to bring it up with the right people. So, Thank you for taking this time because I think you're right in knowing, and that's a huge part of it is people feeling empowered to be educated and then empowered to make the decisions that are right for them. Yeah. Is there anything I didn't ask related? I mean, across the board, COVID screening related, um, breast awareness related. I mean, obviously this is a uh, topic or all of these are topics that I'm passionate about, but, and I, so I could keep going on, but I think, I think the, um, the top themes, mm-hmm. um, you know, top two risk factors being a female and aging, but it's really important to reduce all the other ones. So alcohol consumption, um, obesity, stress management, um, diet are important. Knowing your non-modifiable risks, right. Um, you know, those are when you started your menstruation. Um, if you've been on birth control or hormone replacement, um, if you've had any kind of chest radiation, knowing your family history, and again, asking more than just breast cancer history and telling your doctors more than just breast cancer history. And if there's ever a change, so if, you know, someone in the family got diagnosed with something, you need to let your doctors know because that might be what tips the scale. Right, so you might not have been someone who warranted genetic testing or high risk screening last year, but one or two changes can can tip you over and be 
what it takes for us to realize that there's something going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just always being mindful and always having open communication. And then in the setting of COVID, again, realizing that um, this backlog um, is going to create significant bottlenecks. And the goal is to you know, always have screening be something that's accessible. And so that is going to take um, even more buy-in from patients now. Mm-hmm. Just to wrap up, I'm curious. So it sounds like, um, was, it, is it, was it Hurricane Katrina you experienced during med school? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so, so you're not a, not a stranger to crisis. <laughs> no, not at all. Unfortunately. I mean, yeah, at some point, uh, my friends used to joke about how hurricanes follow me because I think I've technically been affected by like six hurricanes now. Oh, wow. Um, but not, of course, nothing, thankfully nothing like yeah. Katrina, but, but yeah, so, um, so I'm sort of, yeah, accustomed to life being turned upside down and just mm-hmm. roll, roll. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure in each instance, you, you know, there's something been able, you've been able to take away this time around with COVID. It's might be in the future, but so far, is there something you feel like you're taking away from this experience or you hope we take away? I mean, I hope that this has impressed on our nation, our world, the need for policy procedure and health maintenance, right? Um, obviously, policies in place for how to respond to something like this, procedures in place for how to respond to something like this, because, you know, yes, it was one in a hundred years, um, but, you know, we never know where these viruses are, are hiding, and this isn't something that no one knew about. Um, but also the healthcare disparities have really um, played a huge role in this, uh, in that those with underlying diseases and communities um, with less access to care have uh, certainly been affected um, at much higher rates. And so, you know, we really need to just continue to work on eliminating healthcare disparities, increasing access, um, increasing knowledge and understanding. Um, and just having overall better health maintenance because, you know, the numbers in the United States are high for a lot of reasons, uh, population density, uh, that, you know, et cetera. But we also just don't have great health, not health care, health um, in this country. And so that sort of set us up for failure. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's just like you mentioned, you know, that it's, it, it's really shined a light on that and include and the disparities and certainly, well, thank you so much. This is really helpful. I hope, um, you know, again, rather, it seems like your, um, attitude towards addressing these things based on your social media for so long has been not wanting to scare people, but really educate, focus on education, focus on a mindful action. Um, not, you know, not drive, getting people to go stir crazy over an issue, which I think is exactly what we need in a time like this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. That I, I, that's 100% my goal is to empower because, you know, I don't want awareness turning into anxiety. I want awareness turning into action. So just trying to get people to take um, an active role in their health. Awesome. Thank you. 
If you've liked this episode of The V Word, please visit us at www.vwordpod.com and listen, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at vwordpod. This podcast was written and produced by the V Word team, Dr. Jennifer Conti, Dr. Erica Cahill, and Bethany Bonilla. Thanks for listening.